Hello, and I'm Rosalind Palmer, and this is Monkey Business, a podcast for business people everywhere to really understand our monkey minds. And my guests are people who have tamed their monkey minds, who have learned from their backgrounds and who navigate in a way that all of us can learn something amazing from. And I'm delighted to welcome my first guest, Vanda Goldbag. Hello, Vanda. Hello. Now, Vanda... I've got your effective CV, which would take several pages to read out. Um, But you're a chair of many prestigious bodies, and I'm sure you can share with people um, what and who they are. And you're a former client of mine, first of all, when you were chair of the Direct Marketing Association, and then when you were managing director of the BA subsidiary Air Miles. You're an English girl with a non-English sounding name. And you have a very interesting family history, which obviously a lot of it might be the grit and determination and tenacity of where you've come from. And also you've navigated many industries at a time when, for example, direct marketing wasn't the glamorous subset of advertising. You're very data driven. You now, I think, like to refer to yourself as somebody who can chair very difficult meetings. Yes, that's right. So I see you as a sort of super duper corporate referee, really. And when I worked with you, you taught me many, many things. And probably the main one was about transparency. Uh, I remember you particularly telling me once not to BCC you in on an email because if you weren't CC'd, you didn't know about it. And either let everybody know that you knew about it and then you could either do something or know that you were being copied or not. And over and over again, you made me um, or you helped me to raise my game about transparency. So how do you how right from an early age did you discover that tenacity and those values? So, as you say, English sounding person with a very foreign sounding name. My father um, is a Polish Jew, was a Polish Jew, and all of his family died in the Holocaust. So I was his nearest living relative apart from a sixth cousin. That's six. Uh, when I was born. So um, like a lot of children who are the first generation of Holocaust survivors, um, I had quite a tough time. And I think those experiences were very difficult for him. Uh, My mother um, was a very English uh, woman, very Church of England, very, um, in some ways, very ordinary. And so she had married this extraordinary foreigner. And so throughout my childhood, I had this weird um, background where I felt very English. My mother was very English. But occasionally somebody would say something dreadfully negative. I I can recall uh, getting into a grammar school and um, a neighbour muttering to my mum, well, um, you know, it's a Church of England grammar school. I don't know why she's been allowed in. And I was absolutely bewildered by this. And I said to my mum, what does she mean? And she said, oh, she's just being stupid. You are Church of England. And I said, but but she said I wasn't. She said, oh, it's because your dad's a Jew. And, you know, I'm not even certain before that I knew that fact because um, we weren't brought up as Jews. Um, So right from the beginning, I was slightly aware that we were different and um, people wanted to discriminate against us. And I guess that made me feel um, more forceful and more willing to stand up to myself. And as you know, I then came out as a lesbian at the rather young age of 14. And I had all the issues that you would expect. uh, We're talking a long time ago. Uh, People tried to send me to therapy and to shock treatment and so on. And I was completely clear that I was okay. So um, right from the beginning, I knew how to stand up for myself. 
I have this lovely little picture of myself, age two, wearing what um, I think of as a Paddington Bear duffel coat. And I'm standing there and I've got my hands behind my back, a bit sort of Prince Philip-like. And I look like a little determined two-year-old. And um, people who've known me over the years who've seen that picture have gone, oh, look, you've always been the same. <laughs> that grit, that determination. And and coming out so young and also at that time, I mean, you and I are not a, a dissimilar age and times have changed enormously. Yes. How did you have the courage to keep sticking by that? I, I just saw this amazing list that I shared on social media of reasons that women in the 1860s were admitted to mental institutions, um, including death of son. Um, reading was one. and. Yes, very dangerous reading. Very dangerous, never mind about writing or speaking. But basically, it seemed anybody who didn't, wasn't a square peg in a square hole was seen that they could be cured. Um, so how did you resist that pressure at that time? So for me, it was completely natural. It was absolutely obvious to me that being a lesbian was completely fine. And I really didn't understand everyone's panic around me. I mean, I went at that point to a mixed grammar school and I was completely fine with both my boy um, cohort and the girls I was at school with. At 16, I transferred to an all girls grammar school. And at that point, everybody was very, very tense because I was completely out and no one really knew what to do about it. Um, But Um, I was comfortable in who I was. Um, It did make me make some decisions. I came to the London School of Economics at 18 and um, I wanted to study economics and economic history. So LSE was the best university to do that. But every other university I listed on the form already had a gay sock. So um, I picked it, LSE number one and everything else, so that I knew there would be other gay people there. So I arrived in London aged 18, um, had a very successful time at the LSE, ended up in what we (laughs) called... uh, the role of general secretary, which is, I think, now known as the president of the Students' Union, um, and really, really enjoyed London and thrived in London and felt very happy here. Um, and then a 25-year career in marketing. And as you say, then I ended up running Air Miles, which is where I met you. Well, I met you at the DMA before that. And That's right. I think you love data, don't you? you I, I remember having conversations with you because... It was seen as the less glamorous subset yes. of advertising, as, as indeed was PR or basically anything that wasn't advertising. And yes. I think that's interesting that both you and I ended up in that sort of slightly outlier district. Um, for you, what was the real big attraction about direct marketing? Well, like a lot of people, I fell into marketing by accident. But the reason why I loved data-driven marketing is that it's not a question of you know, how senior you are or how white you are or how male you are. It's about whether you're right or not. So you can genuinely have a conversation. You can say, I think this form of marketing will work best or that or, or targeting towards these customers will work better. And two or three months later, you have a result, which is an absolute. And um For me, above the line advertising and TV advertising has often been a world in which, you know, the creatives think, let's open on a scene of Barbados. Well, of course they do, because that means they get to go and do the film shoot (laughs) there. Whereas what I was interested in was real results. And in database marketing and direct marketing, you can get the results and know you've made a difference. The most extraordinary thing, I worked at one point for a French cosmetics company called Yves Rocher, a very early type of body shop. And we did a mailing in which the um, 
object that you were buying was either going to be £2.95 or £2.99. And I said people would buy more at £2.99. And everyone said, no, they wouldn't. They would do it at £2.95. And I was proved right, which is why people like Marks and Spencers and so on always have the price being 0.99. And, and, and it's not a matter of debate. You know, the results came through. They were very clear. So um, that's why I like data. Um, but I, I don't only like data. I think that data with insight uh, mm. around people and their behaviour is also very important. So that insight that you have around people and their behaviour and, and fast forwarding to air miles where you effectively are brokering between a smaller maverick almost um, subset of a big corporate organisation. How did you navigate that marrying of those cultures, marrying of those mindsets? Well, it was sometimes quite difficult. Um, the Air Miles I joined still had one or two of the founders of the original Air Miles company, but they had got into financial trouble elsewhere um, and had had to sell out to BA. So my board was BA stalwarts, Air Miles mavericks, and then one or two of us who were new and who had neither worked as a founder or at BA. And I basically refereed, and I, I often say this in, in, in these sorts of interviews, it's a remarkable just how abysmal they all behaved on the board at the time. And there's me, you know, relatively young, going, I'm sorry, I think actually as director of the company, we're supposed to take this sort of philosophy. Uh, you know, for example, the BA, BA members are often very much more concerned about BA's image or their need to get rid of seats than they were about Air Miles customers. Well, actually, in the Air Miles boardroom, their duty was to Air Miles and its customers, not to the BA shareholder directly. So um, that was the start of my chairing difficult meetings. And although I didn't technically chair those, um, it's a sort of joke that I've never been in a meeting I haven't chaired if I wanted to. So if someone's chairing in Epley or letting other people speak over each other and someone's not getting in, I'm always likely to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I think Roslyn had a point there. And is that driven by your need for fairness what, what's going on in your own mind at those points when you interject so i absolutely and utterly believe in the diversity of thought as well as other forms of diversity i think if you have a, a meeting which is you know basically five white men who all went to the same sort of schools and you have one woman who's trying to make a point and there's just being ignored actually apart from being unbelievably rude it's also completely dangerous because the five white men who went to the same school are probably going to have the same thought processes she might be the one going well hold on a minute i think consumers feel this or actually as most of our customers are women i would like to make this point and and it's for me boards work well when you have people who are very different and it's not just diversity in the sense of black and white male and female though that is very important it's also diversity in background you know if everybody is basically upper class or everyone is basically you know a bit sporty, then you don't get a rounded view of what you're trying to do. And particularly in times of stress, you don't get flexibility of thinking. In times of stress, there's a there's a tendency for us all to revert back to what we know really best. Um, and, you know, so, for example, I'm, I'm aware that if I'm in a difficult situation, I always think, what's the data showing on this? Mm, yeah, of course. The, I got through the cancer 15 years ago because my go-to default action is let's push on through, let's know more than anybody else. But actually, sometimes in some situations, sitting with it is actually a better thing to do. Clearly not cancer and a fast a fast growing one where they're saying let's chop you open and throw lots of things at it clearly you are somewhat um you know speeded up in that place 
I yes. saw a great uh, tweet this morning from Matt Haig. I love Matt Haig. I don't know if you've discovered him. He's a novelist. Uh, he writes novels and also self-help books and mostly mental health related. And I just adore him. And he goes in and off of Twitter because every so often he gets trolled and upsets people. And apart from being delighted when people like Piers Morgan block him, I think he actually has a hard time with it. But what he said this morning was, please tell me some people I can follow who don't have my views because I feel I'm in too restrictive a bubble at the moment. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's the point I'm making at board meetings or panel meetings or anywhere else. Um, it's terribly easy to be around people who think like us and who say things like, oh, you're absolutely right, Vanda. Well, that's dreadfully helpful. Isn't it? But actually, on the occasions when I'm dreadfully wrong, it would be actually useful to have someone say, you don't know what you're talking about. And and it's quite difficult to get that um, in honest dialogue. And um, one of the things I've always tried to do is to hire people who other people see as threatening my job. Um, so I think that's great. If someone's threatening my job, it means I can go off and get another one. Yeah, you're raising your game as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I learned a lot about some of my hiring choices until I had a little bit more clarity. Talking of difficult meetings again, what are some of the committees or organisations that you chair or have recently chaired where you've really, truly had to be that referee? You've literally got people on both sides of the army. And how have you done it? Well, I think the most extreme case was uh, the Performing Rights Society, which is the body that collects royalties for publishers and writers. Um, I was on their board for a total of 12 years. And um, we'd have these big board meetings on one side of the room. You'd have lawyers and commercial people from the very, very major music industry companies, Sony, BMG, Warner Chapel. And on the other outside, and that's how they always sat, by the way, was the crazy poets and druggies of the 60s and 70s who'd written the most fabulous music on earth. And by the way, crazy druggies and poets is how they saw themselves as well. And they absolutely hated each other. I mean, they literally loathed each other. And quite often they'd had, you know, commercial um, dealings in the 60s and 70s, which had not gone well. So, um, I literally refereed those meetings. And what I always tried to do was to not take sides, but to use the logic of the situation. So this is what we've got to decide. I know you don't like him. She doesn't like you. Um, always, always take the point. That we don't, we're not here to love each other. We're here to make some decisions, which are very, very important to people who receive royalties, you know, many of whom live on them. You know, I mean, people always tend to think of sort of Elton John and Paul McCartney, but actually most people who write songs are you know, really, really not at that end of the marketplace. Mm. Um, and, you know, the extra couple of thousand pounds we give them makes a huge difference to their life. And how, again, drilling down to the mindset, you're in that room you know, my my personal inclination would be, wow, I'm in the room with X, you know, wow, I've always wanted to meet them. Would it be really wrong of me to ask for their autograph? Um, so I would be... Yes, by the way. I do know that from my PR background. <laughs> but the thought, the thought goes through my head. Yes. How do you, again, what goes on in your mind? What's the overlying value that you're trying to get? Probably fairness. That's your true north. I mean, that's probably what I'm actually trying to do. Um, so in, in, in that situation, sometimes royalty money would arrive from a rather obscure country and genuinely no one knew what it was for. I mean, it might have been an allocation or it might just have been, I think we probably ought to give them a couple hundred thousand. And genuinely no one knew whose music had been played. And we had to sit down in a room and decide how to allocate that and it's terribly easy to allocate that on some sort of 
data rule, you know, um, EMI is the biggest music company in the world, so they'll get the biggest proportion of it. But actually, if you know that the music was being played in Romania or in a place where most of the music is country and Western music, it's probably not true that the big publishers are necessarily all powerful in those countries. So um, I would do that. I would say, right, let's, you know, what do we know about where this is being played and what do we know about the source of it and what do we know about that marketplace? And we'd use analogies or we'd use um, other methods. And the important thing is not to have a different way of doing it every time. So the way was always sit down and work out what it's likely to be rather than, you know, having people posturing uh, or, or throwing their considerable weight around. Have there been times you've got that sense of fair play wrong? Well, I don't know if I have. No one has ever mentioned to me that I have. Um I think that I must have made terrible decisions and wrong decisions all, all the way through my career. But I think what I am always doing is transparent about why I'm doing it. So um, even if someone had not liked the answer I got to, they would be fairly confident that I hadn't got a sort of ulterior motive in the process. They would think, oh, Vanda did the maths wrong, or I don't know if she should have done it that way. But they wouldn't be thinking anything other than she was having a good go at it. And there's a great saying, a principle isn't a principle until it costs you money. And you've talked about being principled or learning things right from childhood through your teens into LSE, which I'm sure was a very political and interesting time because I was a student in London as well. Um, Not at the LSE, but I was very well aware of it. So have there been times that your principles have cost you? Yes, there's a couple of times. I worked at one point for an advertising agency and um, I was always extraordinarily smartly dressed and very professional, but I didn't tend to wear dresses or skirts. And I had a very senior member of the team say, look, Van, it would be much, much easier for all of us if you wore a dress. And I said, well, it wouldn't be easier for me. Um, And she said, well, you you know, no one's asking you not to be a lesbian. Just don't let the clients know. And I thought, I mean, in those days, you know, you, you socialised a great deal more with clients. I think it's less true now. But in those days, you know, you took clients horse racing or you went to restaurants with clients and so on. And that was perfectly acceptable. And I would have gone to restaurants with you indeed. Um, and, 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 you know, sitting there while someone says, uh, what do you do, to, do at the weekend? And you're sitting there thinking, well, my wife and I did this and you're not supposed to tell them. So that and that certainly affected my relationship with them. And I, I, in fact, uh I didn't stay there very long. I, think, I can't remember if it was 18 months or two years. Um, and on another occasion, um, at a very well-known travel company, um, it was suggested to me that my uh, persona and my methodology wasn't going to get me anywhere. But that was much, much worse, because what they actually said is, because I was a woman, I wouldn't get to be a director. Mm. Um, and I just thought, that is very interesting. I, mean, I absolutely thought that's discrimination and that is extraordinarily bad. But it was a conversation over a telephone and there were no witnesses. But it was extraordinary that someone felt the need to be able to say, look, Vanda, you're wasting your time. You're a woman. You're not going to be on the board of Toronto School. So you didn't want to be there? No, exactly. Has that changed? Because I certainly, and it's not that my principles have changed, uh, but kind of things or ways I would have behaved in my 30s and even 40s. Now, I'm constantly in my mind thinking about influencing others, um, you know, either being inside the tent or outside the tent. And I'm not sure I always get it right, but sometimes, certainly in the past, I would have been out of there. That would have been it for me, uh, very much like you. Now, there might be the thought process of, 
this is not going to change unless somebody like me changes it. Yes, um, I think I've probably become a little bit more tactful with age, but yeah, we're not starting from a great point. So um, I don't suppose most people who know me think of me as enormously tactful now, but I have moved quite some distance. (laughs) Um, I think that being able to put yourself into other people's shoes and understand what they're saying and why is very important. But if what they're saying is absolute prejudice, then once you've put yourself in your other shoes, you should think, well, that's terribly unfortunate because those are extremely uncomfortable shoes and I don't want to be in them. But, you know, in terms of business life, you know, I've often been in situations where one person thinks we should do this commercially and another person thinks that. That I think is perfectly acceptable. And I think you do need to listen to other people because back to what I said earlier, if you think you're always right, then you're in really big trouble because you're not always right. Statistically, there are times when you haven't understood something or you don't have the experience and you need other people's input. But um, on areas of like discrimination, I'm afraid I don't think I am that extraordinarily flexible. Um, and it, it's it's interesting to me, I live with someone who was black for many, many years. And if you'd asked me at the time I was doing that, whether we have a racist society, I'd have said it's getting much, much better. Really, you know, hardly ever hear racist jokes. It's all much better. The world's moving on. When I stopped living with her, I realised it's absolutely not true. People still make, I mean, like, she, she, she and I were no longer together. And within six months, people were telling me racist jokes. And I was having to say, I'm sorry, I don't find this acceptable. And I realised I was effectively walking around with a huge badge saying, be careful. And the minute I wasn't wearing a huge badge saying, be careful, people went on to say things. And they always say things like, I know I'm not allowed to say this anymore. No, you're right. You're not allowed to say this anymore. And it's wrong. Mm. Moving on from being the good and fair adjudicator, referee, and being uh, led by your own true north um, of, of your own morality and fairness, how then do you step into a leadership role? I, I think you know, I, I, I worked for a lot of development gurus, and once, once upon a time in the 90s, I met General Norman Schwarzkopf in a hot tub in Hawaii. And I look back on it now and I think, you know, when you look back on your life and there's still a lot more of my life uh, to be had, but it's got to be one of the most incredible moments because it's just one of these complete accidents where we're looking across at this man and he's even got the dog tag and everything. And he and I were in that hot tub for an hour and I just said to him, tell me about leadership, tell me about how you lead. It was at the time of the Gulf War. And he effectively said that he had to get men and women who didn't want to be there to willingly follow him into places they genuinely did not want to go. Um, And I suppose his number one ethos for that was how he showed up and what he did. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's. I think it's it, it is leading by example, but I don't mean leading by example by saying nice words. I mean, actually leading by example. Um, and I think it's very interesting in this whole COVID thing, because um, lots and lots of organisations said to the very senior people, please get out of the building now. But the more junior people ended up still staying there. And I just think that's nonsense. Either we all move off in, into Zoom land or we don't. Um, and, uh, you know, I work uh, for the Royal Free Foundation Trust, big hospital in the Royal Free. And we had COVID patients from the very, I think we had the second one. Uh, yeah, we had people right from the beginning. And actually, in that situation, you do have to leave the building because you're just in the way. You, know, you don't want stray people wandering around coming to an admin meeting when in the corridors you have people who are dying of COVID and you're moving them through the corridors straight into intensive care. So that's fine. But I think in general, when you're not in those sorts of situations, then it is leading by example. And that's being there, being present. 
Um, not doing those terrible things where you have vision statements on the wall. Mm, I know. Um, I, I'm, I'm always infuriated by things which say we put customers first. And then you listen to what the company actually does. And they, they cheat their customers. They lie to their customers. They don't tell their customers things in a timely way. And you can, you know, you can sit in a number of workshops and decide what your vision statement is going to be. But if the lived example of staff is that it's not true, mm. they will know that. It's immoral. I genuinely think it's immoral. And a lot of the clients I see for therapy, actually, the big dilemma that a lot of them have, particularly at a high corporate level, is that, you know, they they know they're not living their truth. And they're either compromising it or they're speaking a good game and they go home at night and they kind of wake up at 4 a.m. and they don't feel very good about themselves. Yeah, yes. I honestly don't think I let that happen to myself. I've got quite close on times. I've been very pressurised on occasions. But, um, I mean, like most people, I spend a lot of my day at work. Um, The majority of my time is spent with work colleagues. It's not spent with the people I love. Um, and so if you are compromising yourself, if you feel uncomfortable, I mean, it's just horrible experience. Apart from all the things around morality, it's just not good for you psychologically. No. And I, sus- I suspect that's one of the reasons why some of the people who come to you for therapy and counselling uh, you know, are bringing that subject to you. Because if you're constantly compromising, you know, if you believe this is the right thing, way to behave in a second sex and your entire company is behaving in a different way and you have to sit there for seven or eight hours a day, that is really debilitating. And, um, you know, I'm afraid I don't believe in an afterlife. I believe this is it. So I believe you should behave well in this life and also to enjoy yourself. And if you can't enjoy yourself at work, you are really, really in a difficult place. How do you make work more enjoyable? Well, I always try and find the fun out of it. Not, not I don't mean fun jokes. I mean um, learning new things. As an example, I've, I've been asked to chair something, uh, a code body in the gas industry. And I don't know very much about gas. In fact, they hired me to know nothing about the gas industry because they needed a neutral chair. So I could just chair the meetings in a you know professional manner. But no, I'm learning about the gas industry. I'm learning how it works. I'm learning how a gas gets into the United Kingdom, how it's transported around. So I'm, I'm making some, some knowledge gains. But I'm also interested because I'm chairing a group of people who are quite technical. And mostly I don't chair technical people. I mostly I chair commercial people or marketing people, or, as I said, musical people. Yeah. So actually chairing a group of people who are mostly very much more technical than me is really interesting. It's growing me a bit. And one of the issues for someone like myself who does multiple chair jobs is people want you to repeat yourself again and again. And they're very happy to pay you reasonably to do that. But actually, you need to grow a bit. So um, I hope that I will always do jobs where I'm always just a bit having to push forward a bit more. Yeah, I'm learning about podcasting. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, exactly. So what have been some of the biggest learnings in your career? Well, I think some of the learnings have been to trust myself and my own judgment, um, not to allow people who appear to be more senior to say, well, it's always like this. Yeah, well, it may have been like this on that occasion, but let's just check and verify. So I think you need self-confidence. The second thing I think is important is to be with a team of people who are not like you. Surrounding yourself by, by yes people, it seems very comfortable at the time, but after you've failed, it's not very comfortable. Yeah. So I think who you work with and what they bring is enormously important. 
Um, I work, amongst other things, for a venture capitalist, and uh, we analyze business cases. We're really good on the finances. You know, we, we do great Excel spreadsheets. But most of the businesses we have succeeded in, in the end, it was the people who ran those and how we interacted with them. So um, always remember that what all businesses rely on is the people, both at the top and, um, you know, at the customer facing end, because um, if there's a disjoint there as well, that usually fails, too. I suppose that's a bit like Dragon's Den in a way. Yes. They look at the, they look at the money, but in the end, it's the, 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 the business and the people they have an affinity with. Mm. Yeah, because most businesses start with one ambition and they have to change slightly in the technical term. It's called pivot. Pivot means I have told you I'm going to do this. And then when it fails, I go like that. And and But the ability to do that is very important. So I think that's the second issue for me. Um, always understand how important the people around you are and the people in any business you invest in or, or in any circumstance. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to ask yourself? Um, I suppose I do occasionally think, how do you juggle this stuff? Um, uh, uh, because at the moment I'm doing quite a few roles. And I think the short answer is that it's so different being a chair or a non-exec chair. If you are a good one of those, you shouldn't be involved in the day to day. Uh, of course, there's a crisis or someone is ill, you do leap in. But mostly you should remember the words non-executive. Yes, exactly. And be a bit hands off. Yeah, because apart from the else, you're a better you're a better help to everyone, including the chief exec. If you can go, I'm sorry, I don't know about the detail about this, but what's worrying me is that you keep saying the same thing and the performance isn't going better. But, you know, other people dive into the performance, you know, uh, and, and I think there are different sectors. I mean, people always say retail is detail, don't they? But even if you were a chair of a retail business, you wouldn't want to be there every day because what you what space are you leaving for the execs? Well, and also to allow them to 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 bring what they bring. It was interesting when you were mentioning about you know having different people. I I was a board member for a couple of charities, and I was brought in because they didn't have anybody with a marketing background. Nearly everybody else was male and financial. And then I'd be in meetings and they'd go, yeah, but you don't understand the finance because you're marketing. Yes. Yeah. Last points for people listening, because I'm talking about the monkey brain over and over again. I'm drilling down to the thinking behind the habits. What tips could you give to anybody listening about how you keep that balance, how you keep that control, how you keep your sanity, really? Well, I, I mean, I don't know whether you would consider this part of the monkey brain, but there's been a number of occasions in my life when I have let to the keyboard go, and then the other part of me has said, hold on a minute, Amanda, let's just sit back. And um, I think abruptly emailing people, saying what you exactly think that moment is usually not very helpful. Even if you believe what someone said or doing is really dangerous, you need to take a moment back to say, okay. Why is Rosalind saying this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you can say, Rosalind, I think this or that. I think that's brilliant. There's a, an NLP question because uh, I do NLP coaching as well. And I get all my clients to do it, which is to say, what else could this mean? Yeah, it's really good. Oh, that's interesting. What else could this mean? I just got cut up in traffic by a car. That person is an idiot or a terrible driver. What else could this mean? Maybe they've just been sacked or they're on the way to hospital. It's a great question. Yes, yes. A child is about to be born in a hospital and they're trying to rush to it. 
exactly. Yes. Banda, it's been amazing. So you've been listening to me, Rosalind Palmer and Banda Goldbag. And um, this has been Monkey Business. And again, many, many thanks, Banda. And speak to you again soon. You've been listening to Monkey Business, a podcast for business people to help tame their monkey mind. And I'm Rosalind Palmer. And my guest in this episode, in this really special conversation, has been a former client of mine, long-term mentor, Vander Goldbag, who is an experienced chair, or as she likes to refer to it, corporate referee, specializing in entrepreneurial businesses. And she's shared with us how, whilst refereeing in a corporate context, some of those really, really tricky situations including the performing rights association where she had to referee between the crazy artists on one side and the lawyers and suits on the other she's tapped deep to make great choices and great shifts and the reason she's able to do that is about really relying on her values how chairing really senior meetings is really about bringing the best out of all of those people. Why she lives her life and acts in business in a totally transparency way and why transparency is so important and something she will never compromise on. What data teaches you about making good decisions and why she spent a weekend in Bristol going through mailing bags once to find all the deceased recipients. Vanda also shared with us how you recruit for senior roles, such as one she's done for the Queen's Council, and other topics, including her very early childhood, being the daughter of a survivor of the Holocaust, growing up an English girl with a strange name, and what happened to her to instill the grit and determination that she shows today. So I was joined by Vanda Goldwag and I'm Rosalind Palmer. Tune in for another episode of Monkey Business on all podcast platforms. And you can reach me at www.rosalindpalmer.com.